The text this morning is but one small passage from the saga of Joseph, not Jesus' earthly father Joseph, but rather the son of Jacob, the one with the technicolor dream coat, Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and who earned the trust of the Egyptian pharaoh. In this text, the pharaoh seeks out Joseph because he learns that Joseph is a keen interpreter of dreams and the pharaoh is in need of his services. Joseph interprets the pharaoh's dream in an interesting way. He especially, uh, essentially speaks about the time that we spend working, planting, reaping, and harvesting, and the time where we enjoy the fruit of our labor. And while most of us probably spend about 90, 95% of our time on the former and what little remains on the latter, Joseph, if you read between the lines, proposes something more radical and even split between the two. Seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Seven years to grow and harvest food and seven years to sit back and eat it. A reading from Genesis. Uh, those of you preferring the colored illustration uh, version of the story, look at the Spark Bible on page 54. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore the Pharaoh, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose blessings we celebrate and in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Way up in the north of England, there's a little town called Scarfolk. It is, in many ways, an ordinary English town. The people who live there go to work, the children go to school, and they take their afternoon tea, just like folks in London. But that's about where the similarities end. You see, Scarfolk is an unusual place in that it has been trapped in an anomalous time loop since 1979. Think Groundhog Day, but on a massive scale. 
For people in Scarfolk, the future never arrived. It's a town trapped in a single decade, the 1970s, repeating over and over and over again. Their culture, their technology, their politics are all frozen in time. As you might imagine, this has effectively cut the town off from the rest of the world where time continues to flow normally. I tell you that Scarfolk doesn't really exist, but the point is moot. It's simply not there. Lost to some parallel universe where life carries on in that ill-fated town, much as it always has. And yet, somehow, artifacts from Scarfolk have occasionally emerged. 1970s-styled children's books, vinyl records, and public service announcements from the Scarfolk City Council have all trickled out somehow. Actually, these glasses are from Scarfolk. <laughs> these relics offer us an inkling of what life is like in a town trapped in time. Now, by all indications, the cultural stagnation has produced unsettling results. When all progress grinds to a permanent halt, it would seem that folks have a tendency to revert to paranoia, superstition, and Orwellian fascism. Now, I happen to actually have a few of these Scarfolk uh, public service announcements with me, which give you a sense of what I mean. Now, this uh, goes against my storytelling instincts here, but before I show you these, I'm going to tell you that, of course, this whole thing is a, is a, a work of satire um, produced by a graphic artist named Richard Littler uh, in an effort to satirize sort of public service announcements from that era. But I thought these were pretty good. This one, you probably can't see these up here, so I'll just, just read them for you. This one says, warning, people are dangerous. If you know any people, Report them at once to the authorities. This one with this friendly little owl, I think that's what it is. It says, from 12th January 1973, it will no longer be legal. Whatever you do, don't. Don't be one of those people who mistakes doing for not doing or you could face a fine. For more information, Please reread this poster. <laughs> and this one, I thought this one was very appropriate for the Christmas season. Um, it says, Council Christmas Boy is operating in your area. He is trained to assess how content you and your family are during the festive season. Well, that's nice. It's very thoughtful of them to make sure everyone's feeling good and content during Christmas. But it carries on. If you hear his flute you are legally obliged to let him into your home. Face the wall. Do not look him directly in the eye. If you fail to meet the minimum contentment requirement, you risk prosecution or chemical sterilization. Don't be content with discontent. As I said, you know, these are uh, an attempt at satire. But I think the story of Scarfolk really speaks volumes about our fears in many ways. I mean, I could go on about the fear of authoritarian governments or thick bureaucracy or the growing mistrust of our neighbors, but 
Frankly, that's all more political than I'm in the mood for today. I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about our fear of slowing down, our fear of standing still for too long, our anxious need for innovation and the equivalent fear of stagnation. Scarfolk is, in some ways, a portrait of what might happen if the wheels of industry and progress should ever stop permanently. Now, the town I grew up in, Meriden, Connecticut, is a lot like Scarfolk. It, uh, it never quite evolved beyond a certain moment in time. The houses are old and large and completely decayed. The old traffic light at the town's main intersection is still there. It's, uh, it's an old-fashioned traffic light that uh, it's, a, it's on an elevated platform that used to be operated manually back in the you know, 1920s. Um, it's still standing there at the intersection. The downtown area is like an old photograph. Businesses that shut down years ago, still advertising their wares behind dusty window panes. Compared to a place like Glen Ellen, people aren't especially driven or ambitious. They're just trying to get by. So coming here was a bit of a culture shock for me, one that I've never fully adjusted to, to be honest. Um, the pace of life is faster. The need for constant innovation is stronger. Reminds me a little of a wonderful book that I once read called Einstein's Dreams. Uh, this book imagines a series of worlds in which time operates differently. Each chapter uh, imagines a world where uh, time either moves backwards or stands still. On uh, some other chapters, time moves at a breakneck speed. In one chapter, the author describes a world that is constantly in motion. People work while standing up at their desks, bobbing to and fro. Even the buildings careen about on giant wheels, racing through the streets, their occupants hurrying to catch up with them. Time is money, and financial institutions are propelled by the fastest engines flying through town, trying to outdo one another. It all reminds me a little of the world around us, if it were imagined by Dr. Seuss. A person thrust into this world would have to dodge houses and buildings, the author writes. When a person comes out of his front door at sunrise, he hits the ground running, catches up with his office building, hurries up and down flights of stairs, works at a desk propelled in circles. No one sits under a tree with a book, the author continues. No one gazes at ripples on a pond. No one lies in thick grass in the country. No one is still. So here we have two very different visions of the world. Scarfolk, where nothing ever changes, and this world of constant motion, where nothing remains the same. And both of these are, of course, extremes, and I would argue that both of them are a kind of dystopia. And a better world, if there is one, lies somewhere in between. Any farmer could tell you that sometimes you have to let a field lie fallow. After planting and harvesting and reaping, you have to let the soil rest and recover. 
Now that's more than agricultural wisdom. It's a biblical injunction. In the book of Exodus, God tells the people to cultivate vineyards and fields for six years, but on the seventh year to let them rest and replenish for a whole year. And this text in Genesis offers similar counsel to avoid a famine. The pharaoh of Egypt has this dream about fat cows and skinny cows, wherein the skinny cows devour the fat cows. It's a very strange dream. Joseph, the dream reader, interprets the dream. And he says that the fat cows are seven years of plenty, and the skinny cows are seven years of famine. And if the nation is to survive the prolonged famine, it has to plan carefully and store up food while the harvest is plentiful. Work the fields for seven years and then enjoy the fruit of that labor for the next seven years. We too are faced with abundance and with famine. We have an abundance of food. We have an abundance of technology, an abundance of media, an abundance of information, and an abundance of innovation. If people stopped making movies or writing books or, or developing new smartphones, we'd still have enough to last us for years. But there's a famine too, a, a spiritual famine. Our fields produce a lot of stuff, but they're failing to yield much joy or contentment or gratitude. In 21st century America, these things are in dangerously short supply. But we have a lot of other things. I have so many toys in my house that you would not believe it. They're everywhere. We have toys that my kids have never even seen, buried beneath two layers of other toys. And it's actually gotten to the point where it's become dangerous in my house. Just the other day, I think I broke my toe because I you know, was avoiding a giant pile of toys in the doorway and, and stubbed my toe against the wall. Now, oh, that could have been an accident, sure. You know, It's not like my kids left those there on purpose. You could make that argument. But then the next day, the next day, my son Levi is only three years old. He got his hands on some dental floss and he wrapped them around the banisters of the stairs right near the bottom so that anyone who come by would trip. And he said, look, Daddy, I made a trap. <laughs> it's dangerous. But he still wants more stuff. He still wants more stuff. Every day, he tells me he wants McDonald's for dinner. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree there, but the reason he wants McDonald's is because he wants a Happy Meal, because a Happy Meal comes with a toy. Every time he gets a Happy Meal, he gets another toy. I've got four of these stupid little Wreck-It Ralph race cars, because uh, they keep giving me the same one over and over again. But, uh, you know, he still gets his dopamine rush when he opens the box. He's a little disappointed, you know, when it's the same toy. He'll be like... Oh, man, you know, but then he's, he's off to the next thing because he can't focus on anything 
for very long. But are we so different? We're always thinking about what's next instead of what's here right now. We always want a new toy or we think we need a new business model or a, or a new marketing strategy or a new piece of tech. The Onion, my favorite satirical newspaper, recently ran a headline that seems fitting here. It said, astronomers confirm that moon will have dozens of new phases in 2019. Because the old phases weren't good enough. How can the moon hope to compete with other astral bodies if it's not offering something new? It seems ridiculous, right? But we do this all the time. Why can't the moon just be the moon? We all want something new. But what would it be like what would our lives be like if we paid more attention to what we already have? I have a, a fantasy that I'd like to share with you. It's not realistic, and it certainly won't be popular, but it's an interesting thought experiment, at least, so, so bear with me. What if every seven years we just stopped? What if every seventh year nothing new was produced, nothing new happened. We'd continue to go to work and school and continue to, you know, do the things we do, but nothing new would be brought into the equation. What if once in a while, for just a little while, time stood still? In this world, there would be no new movies for one year. The theaters would play all of the old classics to be enjoyed all over again. There'd be no new television shows or books. The vast libraries of Netflix and Barnes and Noble, ripe for the picking. All of the things that we wanted to enjoy but never had the time. All of them still there waiting like a verdant field. There'd be no new cars produced that year, or at least no new models. No need to upgrade your phone just for the sake of it. No new apps or social media platforms. No new posts on Facebook unless they are about taking the time to enjoy the old things that are still worthwhile. Feeling grateful, they might read, for a little time to enjoy my favorite novel again. There'd be no new wars that year, or controversy, or scandal. The newspaper would be a dreadful bore. I read a, a local Aurora paper recently that modeled this beautifully. Um, there was nothing remotely interesting in the paper at all, and one of the headlines actually said this, local library is filled with books. <laughs> you know, it didn't make me want to read it, but it didn't make me want to throw up either, which the news has a tendency to do these days. There'd be no political campaigns or campaigns of any kind on the Sabbath year. There'd be no advertising unless it's for old products that you can still buy, or older ones that we wish we still had. It's not as though people are gonna stop buying toilet paper or food or, you know, the other things we need. There'd be no new flavors of coffee, no new breakfast cereal. Did you know that there are currently 16 different flavors of Cheerios? on the shelf at the grocery store. Can you imagine the pressure that these people are under 
to innovate, working late, neglecting their families and their children when there was nothing wrong with the original formula. Why can't Cheerios just be Cheerios? There'd be no new sermons that year. Because all the old ones were so good that they'd be worth hearing a second time. There is a spiritual sickness in our world, a famine that compels us to need more and more as if we were starving when we've already got so much. Like, I, I'm not opposed to being creative or innovative. I'm not opposed to producing new things. It's the constant nature of it that troubles me. We can't enjoy one thing before we're off to the next thing. It's not good for us. There's this feeling that good enough is never good enough. That everything needs to be fixed, even if it isn't broken. That if we stop moving, the world will move on without us. But maybe we should let it move on for a little while. Maybe we should slow down. Stay in God's world, which is filled with gratitude and blessing, where time is not money, but a gift to be shared and used wisely. In the book I referenced before, Einstein's Dreams, there's a chapter about the center of time, where everything stands completely still. The closer you get to the center, the more you slow down, the more entropy sets in. Nothing moves, nothing breathes. And who would venture there, the author writes. Parents with children, he answers his own question, and lovers. In the place without time, he writes, one sees parents clutching their children in an embrace that will never let go. The child will never stop smiling, never get injured, never tell her parents that she doesn't love them. So too, lovers share an eternal embrace. 